Good afternoon, and welcome to the January series 2010 at Calvin College. I'm Ben Shoemaker, President of the Student Body here at Calvin, and on behalf of Calvin College, welcome to this presentation today. I would just like to make a friendly reminder right now, and that is to turn off all cell phones at this time. And now, if you would, please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful creation you have made. Creation that offers diversity, culture, opportunity, and entrepreneurship. We thank you for the understanding to delve into topics that affect our government, cultures, and relations between both. We praise you today for the resource you have given us through Arthur Brooks. We ask for understanding as we listen and renewed interest to the topic that is about to be shared. We thank you for the wonderful freedoms you have blessed us with in this nation, and we pray that we remember to be good stewards with such blessings to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now President Galen Biker will introduce our guest. Our speaker today is a scholar, analyst, researcher, and writer, and public speaker. And he's been described as maybe the most innovative and creative analyst of public policy in America today. His insights are in a different league, and it may lead to an entirely new approach to thinking through public policy issues. Arthur C. Brooks became president of the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research on January 1, 2009 and has emerged as one of the most original social observers today. Dr. Brooks earned his Ph.D. in public policy analysis from the RAND Graduate School in 1998 and holds an MA and BA in economics. He taught at the Maxwell School for Public Affairs and the Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. He was also the chairholder for the Louise A. Battle Professor of Business and Government Policy, served as a senior researcher for the Center for Public Policy Research and the Ellen Campbell Public Affairs Institute. Arthur Brooks has published well over 100 articles and books on the connection between culture, politics, and economic life in America. He is a sought-after public speaker and advisor in the U.S., Asia, and Europe, and a frequent contributor to a number of publications such as the Wall Street Journal. He's also a contributing editor of the Reader's Digest. Dr. Brooks has written four books recently. His book on American charitable giving entitled, Who Really Cares? The Surprising Truth About Compassionate Conservatism was published in 2006. In 2007, he wrote a textbook called Social Entrepreneurship. A year later, he published Gross National Happiness, why happiness matters for America and how we can get more of it. And his newest book, just out in December, has an ironic title, The Virtue of Vice, Why Bad Things Are Good for Us. I need to read that one. <laughs> Prior to his academic career, Dr. Brooks played French horn professionally in the City Orchestra of Barcelona as well as in a number of other ensembles for a period of over 12 years. He's a native of Seattle, Washington, and now lives in Washington, D.C., with his wife, Esther, and his three children. He speaks to us today on the new... Pardon? 
We speak today, he speaks to us today on the new American culture war. Calvin College is grateful to the Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation for underwriting today's presentation. And now, please join me in welcoming Arthur Arthur Brooks. Thank you. Thank you, President Biker. Uh, Thank you to all of you for braving the weather and coming to hear these comments today. Um, very grateful to the DeVos family for their sponsorship of this wonderful series and for giving me the honor to speak uh, to you here today. Uh, looking outside at the snow reminds me that I'm really not in Washington, D.C. anymore. And not just because it doesn't snow there very much, but because if we had any inclement weather at all, the entire city which is on the government payroll, would take the opportunity to not work. And, of course, this venue would be entirely empty, and you would be home watching daytime television. So we're really not in Washington, D.C. anymore. Uh, I'm very glad to be here to talk to you about some of the biggest, most turbulent issues that we are facing in Washington, D.C. Uh, and the title of my talk today is Provocative, Intentionally, The New American Culture War. The reason that I've entitled it this is because it is my view that we are in a new culture war in America today. This is not uh, a culture war of the 1990s over God and gays and guns and abortions. It's not a political fight between Democrats and Republicans. It's not even really a conflict between liberals and conservatives. Today's culture war is between free enterprise and statism. It's between the ideology that the entrepreneurial system is at the center of American culture versus the view that the government is the most important institution in our economy. And we don't know the answer to who's going to win this conflict. This is up in the air. This is an important question that we as citizens are charged to answer. Will we continue to be a country that focuses on free enterprise or will we become a social democracy like our European friends. We don't know the answer, but the answer lies in our hands. Now, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue today that we need to choose free enterprise over statism. I'm going to argue that it's central to our culture in the United States, that it's not just an economic alternative. It is a moral imperative. And I'm going to tell you that it's central to our continuing to be a happy country and not just a rich country. And I'm going to tell you why I think those things. Now, right from the very outset, I'm going to say that I don't uh, pretend that all of you are going to agree with my comments. Um, on the contrary, some of you won't agree with my comments, and I thank you very much in advance for the fact that you so generously have come to hear me, despite the fact that I may irritate you. Um, Let's back up 15 months and think about what's happened in the past approximately year and a quarter. Over the past 15 months, we have, as a world, destroyed approximately $15 trillion in worldwide wealth. $50 trillion. It's a, something that nobody could have foreseen. Indeed, no professional economist like me had any idea what we were in for back in the fall of 2008, early fall of 2008. $50 trillion is an entire year's worldwide GDP wiped out in a puff of smoke. 
Uh, right here in the United States, we've wiped out the equivalent of one year's entire American GDP. That's how much wealth has been destroyed. House prices, residential real estate at their depth were down 34% nationwide. And in places like Florida and California, they were down 55%. Right now, commercial real estate in the United States is down 40%. This is the story that you haven't been reading about, but which has the greatest likelihood, if we have a second dip in our recession, that that's what will provoke it. Unemployment hovers around 10%. We have the worst financial crisis that's leading to the worst macroeconomic crisis that we've seen in the past 50 years. That's not really up for dispute. What's interesting is how do we get out of it? Well, it appears things are getting better, but the question has been all along, what's the best way when you see something that's almost, that appeared at least, to be almost as severe as the Great Depression? How do you get out? Now, I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a public policy think tank in Washington, D.C. I have 60 full-time scholars, of which 20 are economists, who are working full-time to come up with policy solutions to exactly this type of question. What can we do when we're in the midst of destroying $50 trillion in value? Well, there are, of course, policy gimmicks and accounting tricks, and even in, 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 in last resort, we could talk about good policy, but... We haven't really tried that yet as a country, but good policy is theoretically possible. But there's one thing that's worth keeping in mind, which is this. How do you get out of the current recession? The answer is simple, the same way we've got out of every recession in our history. And your, and your grandfather knew it, and if we do our job, our grandkids are going to know it. And that's hard work and entrepreneurship. Working hard and sacrificing and enterprising are the only way we've gotten out of crises in the past, and they're the only way we're going to get out of this crisis right now. Now, the sad truth for somebody like me is you don't need a PhD in economics to know that. That's common sense. All of you knew that. But the question then becomes, is that the advice that we're getting from our leaders today? Is hard work and entrepreneurship what we're being advised to do? Well, let's turn to our leaders and hear what they're telling us. Let's hear what they're advising us right now. On May 13, 2009, President Obama gave his first commencement address to students at Arizona State University. Now, it's a rite of passage for a new president of the United States to give a a commencement address uh, shortly after inauguration, or as soon as possible after inauguration. He gave his at Arizona State. And speaking to the graduates, he gave them this advice, and I quote, You're taught to chase after the usual brass rings. Being on the who's who list, or that top 100 list, how much money you make, or how big your corner office is, whether you have a fancy enough title or a nice enough car. But let me suggest that such an approach won't get you where you want to go. It displays a poverty of ambition. Think about that for a minute. What he's suggesting is to avoid trying to get rich and famous. That's what President Obama is suggesting to the graduates of Arizona State University. In the midst of the worst recession in 50 years, the advice is try to avoid the traditional brass rings of success because that displays a poverty of ambition. Now, I understand the sentiment. I, like most of you, am a Christian. 
And I believe that material things can be and frequently are a true tyranny to people, that materialism is something that we deeply need to avoid. But that said, I'm extremely uncomfortable with a philosophy that right now does not encourage young people who are the only part of our population that going forward will deliver us from this recession and future recessions to avoid earning and working a lot who talk about public service not in terms of entrepreneurship, not in terms of productive work, not in terms of earning and achieving and showing real ambition, but in terms of public service that does not do those things. I'm uncomfortable with that because I believe that it betrays a philosophy that is cold to entrepreneurship and that is warm to statism. And that worries me a lot. I think it betrays a philosophy from our current leaders, that commercial activity is inherently selfish, that we need a sharing economy that has less risk for entrepreneurs, an economy in which free enterprise can't be trusted because it's at fault in cases like our current economic crisis, and which we need a much more prominent government to redistribute resources. That, I believe, is a philosophy characteristic of leaders in America today. So the question then is, how do you get a bigger government? And this shows the policies that we are actually seeing from Washington, D.C. today. In the past calendar year, during this administration, we have created a net new 13,000 jobs in the federal government. The number of jobs that pay more than $100,000 a year to federal employees has doubled in the past 12 months. Today, the average federal worker makes $71,000 in America today. The average private sector worker makes $41,000. In other words, it takes approximately two private sector workers to pay for every bureaucrat in America today, and that number is going up. There are only two sectors in America today, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that have unemployment rates below 6%. One is the government, and the other is unpaid labor. Now, think about how ironic this is. It's a terrible recession. We're worried about jobs. The federal government consoles us by telling us that it's actually not so bad if you're either a bureaucrat or a volunteer. This is hardly scant comfort for people who are in Grand Rapids, Michigan, people who are in Des Moines, Iowa, people who are in Seattle, Washington, who don't happen to live where I do, Washington, D.C. It's a tough time, and this is not This is not comforting. But that, of course, is the idea, is to grow the state, because that has to be the center of the economy that we can trust, according to our leaders. Now, here's the government's philosophy in a nutshell. It's encapsulated in the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which was unveiled by President Obama in July of 2009. Under this program... Uh, employees of federal, state, or local government will have their student loans forgiven after 10 years of service. That's the program. So, graduates of Calvin College, they go out and they work for 10 years as entrepreneurs. They start their own business. Or they go work for Amway. Is their student loan forgiven? Of course not. But if they go to work for the Internal Revenue Service, their loan goes away. That is an encapsulation. That's all you need to know about this administration's priorities for how our economy is supposed to work. Perhaps you join me in regretting that, perhaps not, but it does betray an awful lot about the vision of the country that we want today. Now, here's a different kind of question. 
is that the kind of country that most Americans want? And that's an empirical question. That's a question that we can investigate using statistics. What kind of country do most Americans want? Do most Americans want more government, or do most Americans want a system that focuses on free enterprise? Well, in March of 2009, the Pew Research Center, which is a totally nonpartisan group in Washington, D.C., asked a large sample of American adults the following question. Do you agree that the American economy is best centered on the free market system despite severe ups and downs, with that caveat? Given that question, 70% of Americans agreed, 20% disagreed, 10% had no response to the question. 70% of Americans agreed that the free market system was the best system to organize America's economy despite severe ups and downs. Taxes. How do people feel about taxes? They're going up, as you know. But when we ask people, what do you believe the top federal tax rate in this country should be? 76% of Americans say it should be less than 20%. As you probably know, the top rate right now is 35%. It's going to 39.6% next January. With getting rid of deductions, it will be 41%. When we have a surtax for health care and perhaps a surtax for the war, it will be between 46 and 48%. That's a lot more than the 20% favored by 76% of Americans today who actually believe that we can and should dispense with more of our income than we do today. How do we feel about business? The Pew Research Center asked people, do you agree that the strength of America is in business? 76% said yes. 76%. Now, interestingly, in the same survey, three-quarters of Americans also said they don't trust American business. Now, which just shows you that Americans like free enterprise, but they're not stupid. Right? There are lots and lots of reasons to be skeptical about something that you love. This makes perfect sense. 90% of Americans believe that the center of our culture is the institution of marriage. But I bet you 90% of Americans also don't trust American husbands. And now you get the picture on how we should be skeptical lovers of the free enterprise system and not leave ourselves entirely to the tender mercies of particularly big business. The Ayers-McHenry polling group asked, which of these choices do you prefer? A larger government with more government services but higher taxes? Or smaller government with fewer government services and lower taxes? 69% of Americans preferred smaller government and fewer services. Only 21% favor larger government Uh, and more services. In in point of fact, we're a 70-30 nation. America, 70% is in favor of the free enterprise system. And this explains a strong public opposition to our current government growth. But then there's a question. Why is it that the 30% are in charge? If we're a 70% nation, if we're a 70-30 nation, why is it that the 30% that wants a bigger government that is suspicious of the free enterprise system, why is it that they're in charge? Now, you're probably thinking I'm going to say something about about Democrats winning the election in November, but I'm not. And the reason I'm not is this is not about Democrats versus Republicans. In truth, this is about politicians versus you. That's really what it's all about. The 30% coalition in charge does not just include 
Democratic politicians. It includes Republican politicians, and it has for about the last 10 years. Here's some evidence. Over the eight years preceding uh, Barack Obama's presidency, every kind of federal social spending increased in real terms. The Department of Education increased by 54% over President Bush's two terms. In his two terms, President Bush was asked to sign spending bills that contained 55,000 earmarks, which he did sign. He never vetoed a piece of legislation because of abusive spending. During the presidency of George W. Bush, we created the largest single entitlement program in the history of the United States, Medicare Part D, which was, according to the Congressional Budget Office, going to cost American taxpayers $593 billion between 2004 and 2013. This from a president who said he believed in the free enterprise system over a statist system. So in point of fact, we've only had the 30% coalition on offer in this country, and that's the reason that they're in charge, Democrat or Republican. We've gotten railroaded into statism. And this is where we are. So who cares? Maybe it doesn't... Oh, look. 70% of us agree that the free enterprise system is better than statism, that the government is too large, that taxes are too high, that free enterprise is something we should cherish, that we should pay more attention to fostering entrepreneurs, and on and on and on. But the government disagrees, and they're growing despite what we think. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Who cares about this? And my answer to that is, you should... And the reason you should is that the evidence says that the direction we're going is not going to bring us more happiness, and it is certainly not going to make a happier country for our children and grandchildren. Let me tell you why. Uh, For a long time, I did research on the topic of happiness. I'm very interested in the topic of happiness because, well, because everybody is. It's fundamental. You know, as an economist, I did a lot of, I, I did all my training on money, but Money is not very motivational to people. Uh, people are running around trying to get it, but deep down, the currency of our souls is happiness, not money. Here's an interesting thing. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that money doesn't buy happiness. Right? Everybody knows. But if you're like me, you'd like to figure that out for yourself. Right? Your mother told you it doesn't. Your minister told you that it doesn't. But people are running around trying to get it anyway. And when you ask people, what do you think would make you a little bit happier? Frequently they say something to you about money. If I got a raise, that would make me happy. If I won the lottery, that would make me happy. If I inherited some money, that would make me happy. But they don't really know if it would be true. So, like a lot of other economists, I studied this question for a long time. Does money buy happiness? I'm going to tell you how this all relates to the free enterprise system in a minute, but bear with me. Does money buy happiness? The answer is yes and no. That's a typical economist's response, right? On the one hand, yes and no. No, unearned income doesn't bring you any happiness. You can, I can, if I give you a bunch of money, it will not make you happier. If you win the lottery, I have studies, I have data on lottery winners Lottery winners, six months after they win, have the same baseline level of happiness as before they won, but they're unhappier fundamentally in their lives because the little things in their lives no longer give them satisfaction. People who inherit money 
are not happier. On the contrary, generally speaking, are a little less happy than before they inherit money. Welfare income clearly lowers the happiness of people when they get the welfare income. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't get welfare income. I'm just saying that their happiness is not enhanced by it. Clearly, unambiguously, in all the research, unearned income does not bring any happiness at all and should be avoided. It's interesting. I was doing the research on, the, on inheritance. And uh, I was discussing it at dinner with my three children. And... Uh, my oldest son said, Dad, something I'm sure is wrong with your data. <laughs> but the, I, I gave you the no part about money buying happiness. Here's the yes part. Money does bring happiness when it's earned. Earned money is highly associated with happiness. But it's not about the money part. It's part of the earned part. It turns out that when people feel that they have earned success, they become happier people. If you ask people, do you feel very successful about your life? And they say yes, that is the best predictor of happiness except for a few lifestyle things like marriage and faith. Besides marriage and faith, earned success is the big driver of fundamental happiness. And that's the reason that people who earn money tend to be very happy. People who earn money are almost always happier than people who don't because they have earned success and money tends to come along for the ride. Now, I've done analysis that actually neutralizes the money part and just isolates the success part. And what does it say? Imagine you have two people who are identical demographically. They're the same age and the same race and they're the same sex and they're the same family circumstances and marriage and religion and politics. But and, and both of them, furthermore, are equally likely to say, I feel very successful about my life. One earns eight times more money than the second. They will be equally happy, according to the data. If you can equalize success, money doesn't matter. And so really, money doesn't even buy happiness in that case. What really buys happiness is earned success. That's what we want. We want people to be able to earn their success. So the question is, what's the best system for happiness? For America. And my answer to that is it's a system that has two characteristics. Characteristic number one, it's a system that facilitates earned success by creating opportunity for millions of people. Characteristic number two is it's a system that does not put barriers in the way of ambition by taking away the rewards from earned success. What is the system that does those two things best? In my view, it is the free enterprise system. I did not grow up from an entrepreneurial family. I did not grow up in a family where anybody uh, was running a business. I did not grow up in a family that had any kind of material wealth. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a family that was not very sympathetic to the principles of free enterprise. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, to a family of academics and artists. I mean, basically, I grew up in the Soviet Union. And I can tell you that the views I'm telling you today, I came upon honestly because I studied the subject of happiness. And I looked at who is happiest. And I said, these are the people who believe in opportunity and who believe in merit and who believe in reward and who want something better for their kids. And they want to earn their own success and they don't want to hand out. And what's the system that gives it to them best? It's a system that delivers the opportunity. And my view became 
the honest way, looking at the data, that the free enterprise system delivered that the most, which makes it the system that delivers the most happiness. Statism does not do that. And 70% of Americans understand what I'm saying fundamentally and agree with this point of view. So if you are one of those 70% and not part of the 30% that is currently in charge and that has run this country for a long time and is moving our country towards statism, but rather if you're part of the 70% who agree with me that that free enterprise is a superior system for greater human flourishing and is indeed the true promise of the American dream, then I challenge you in two ways. My view is that people who agree with this point of view have two major challenges. And the first is ethical. What are we doing to make sure that the system of opportunity is not a false promise for anybody? What are we doing today, particularly in this time of deep crisis, to find more opportunities for more people? Because if we believe in the promise of the free enterprise system, that means we believe in earned success, and that means we insist that there must be equality of opportunity, and it is incumbent upon us to find new ways to create more opportunity for more people. Some of you are entrepreneurs who engage people in their own success by giving them opportunities in business. It's a wonderful thing. Some of you are educators who are finding ways to do that. But all of us can do this every day. And my view is we should be charged with thinking more about our true stewardship. And our true stewardship is focused on more opportunity for more people. What can we do today? Challenge number two is holding leaders responsible. What are we going to do to hold leaders accountable from both political parties to stand up for the free enterprise system? Now, there's some that do. I mean, you're very blessed to have a, a, a congressman here who clearly agrees with me and has voted accordingly. But that's not the norm in America today. What are we going to do to hold our public officials accountable to our values now, when I talk, in, in, as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, I talk to a lot of people who are of significant means, and, and when they ask, what can we do, one of the questions I ask is, when a politician comes to you and asks you for money, what do you say? Eh, he's a little better than the other guy, I guess, right? Or do you say, you don't share my values, good day? Because that's what needs to happen. We need to exercise principle over power, and only then will the values of the 70% majority become the norm once again. Here's my last word. We're in a healthy war of ideas today. Now you know why I believe that the new American culture war is one over free enterprise, and we're in danger of losing it to a minority who believe in statism. We're deciding who we are, and this is a bitter fight. But here's something to be really grateful for. In the war of ideas, in the bitter war, the conflict that we're talking about right here, we can fight without fear. And the reason that we can fight without fear is that we can disagree with each other. And I'm not going to worry about getting locked up. I've criticized the President of the United States in public today. There simply aren't that many countries around the world where I wouldn't be facing jail after the speech today. In point of fact, we will adjudicate the war of ideas in America without firing a shot. And that's one more of thousands of great reasons to celebrate being an American. Thank you.
Dr. Brooks has agreed to answer some questions. Uh, we ask that if you have a question, you go to one of the microphones in the uh, rear of one of these aisles and ask your question so that the people at the remote sites can hear it as well. Uh, please keep your questions succinct, and uh, we'll take questions for 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, who's first? Yeah, nobody at the mics. Yeah. Here, right, there's a mic right there, John. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. This is maybe off. Yeah, no, it's, it's on. We can hear you. You hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, I didn't, wasn't unable to connect very directly your introductory remark about the loss of wealth equivalent to the GDP hmm. of one year, and the thesis of your speech, which was statism uh, versus free enterprise. Where, what is your real analysis on why the wealth was lost? Uh, what, what I didn't talk about was uh, I, I did not actually uh, give an analysis of the financial crisis. What I was talking about was the reaction to the financial crisis, how we're trying to solve the financial crisis. And that, that really is the, the war between statism and free enterprise. One side says that free enterprise will solve the problem or at least help us solve the problem. The other says that it's unreliable. And so the state really needs to solve the problem that was created that led to $50 trillion in destroyed wealth. How did $50 trillion go up in smoke? Boy, that's a... It's a question for the ages, and it's one that economists come to blows over. But in a nutshell, I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the fairest reading of the data. Uh, men and women who are fallen and selfish and have imperfect information were given a whole lot of incentives by horrible government policy. In point of fact, particularly starting in the United States, the federal government in this country created an environment in which too many people were able to buy too much property that they couldn't afford and made it too easy for them to walk away from it. And furthermore, to create circumstances under which company, financial firms, were able to participate in an unsustainable system with borrowed money. Bad government policy led imperfect people to make some very stupid choices. Now, the great irony is if you listen to our leaders today, they'll tell you that the, the fault of this thing was... Wall Street, but not government. Government was at the root of this problem. Had it not been for government housing policy and the actions of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the mortgage market, we would not have had nearly the kind of irresponsible behavior that we saw from, and, and, and grossly irresponsible and indefensible behavior on Wall Street, and grossly in, ir, indis, in, uh, 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 incorrigibly irresponsible behavior on Main Street. But at the root of it was terrible public policy, and the answer we're getting on how to fix it is more terrible public policy. You will notice that the government is building back up Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, is building up back up the very beginning, very beginning institutions of the crisis that are at the root of what we're seeing today, and that's what we will get until we demand not just a new economic institution, but a true expression of our values. It's a, you know, once again, we could the, I, I thought about actually talking about the, the 12 myths about the financial crisis under the circumstances, but that's, let's just say that's the first big myth, that it's the free enterprise system and not the government. Go ahead. 
Um, I just had a question. Um, you mentioned that the free enterprise system is the most, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's the most congruent with the American dream. And I think you're right. Um, but my question is, is the American dream the same as the Christian dream or the biblical dream? And uh, I'm glad you brought in the happiness thing as well because uh, you mentioned how happiness, like the studies show how people earning their wealth is very uh, congruent with human happiness. But is that the biblical picture of human happiness with um, loving God and loving our neighbor and um, taking care of the least of these and such things as that. Um, are these American dreams and values the most congruent with the biblical ones? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. Goodness, I mean, this is something that that question in a nutshell has been argued over since the founding times of America. Um, what does it mean for us to be the shining city on the hill? What does it mean for us to have an economic system that, that reflects in the view of founding fathers and even before, the will of God. And of course, I'm not going to add a whole lot that's new to that, but I will say this. I will say something that strikes me, because I'm not just an advocate of the free enterprise system. I'm a committed Christian person. And so I think about this a lot. You know, For my values, what does it mean when in my daily prayer I say, Lord, make me a better servant? What does it mean? Does it mean send money to particular candidates? Does it mean call my congressman? Does it mean just pay my tithe? Does it mean create a job? What does it mean? And that is, I think that as opposed to the answer to that question is what we're charged with, I think it's asking of that question is what we're charged with. I think an important part of Christian stewardship is actively probing that particular question. What does it mean outside of the life of my soul, but rather in the in my business life and in my public policy life and in my community life and in my family life, how am I going to actually live my values? I am not going to argue that capitalism... I mean, I do believe that all institutions, including capitalism, are, are, are from God because I believe that everything is from God. But I will not tell you that the free enterprise system is necessarily God's will because that kind of hubris... I mean, I would be quite frankly, afraid of a lightning strike. It is, uh, uh, I will tell you, I think it is the best way that I can express in the public policy world my sense of stewardship and opportunity for the greatest number of people. And as such, I feel it is a very convenient tool of my Christian stewardship. And I ask you, and I charge, I think we're all charged with the same, with the same question every single day. Is that right? And, and if so, Why? Thank you. Thank you, first of all, for your presentation. Um, I, in my retirement years, I'm currently directing a pantry where we feed 500 families in need per month. I don't think what we do in the pantry creates barriers, but I don't think what we do in the pantry creates a lot of opportunity either. Do you have some, some specific kinds of things that could be suggested to all the pantries across the country as to how we create more opportunity right now? Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been involved in the nonprofit world my whole career, and uh, I taught nonprofit management for 10 years. 
before coming to the American Enterprise Institute. I worked with social entrepreneurs. And social entrepreneurs are always worried about this. They say, I'm putting Band-Aids on stuff. I want to fix these things. I want to find root causes. I want to make this thing right. How do I do it? And, so, and you're taking it to another level. You're transcending even that. You're saying, I don't just want to fix the root cause. I want to give people opportunity to not just get them back to zero, but to get them in the positive numbers. And I'm going to do that with opportunity. How do I do it? Here's an idea. The research shows that the happiest, healthiest, most opportunity-prone people are servers. The best way to predict if somebody is a leader and the best way to predict when somebody is going to be healthier, happier, and richer is by looking at their service. Now, I can look at this in any different... I mean, I've done research that shows that money-giving actually is causally related to monetary prosperity, to greater happiness, and to greater health, as well as better citizenship. As a matter of fact, I can show that one way for you to actually make yourself happier is by giving blood. I have the data that show that. Because I have the data on everything. But I have, the, I have the data that can show that. So, okay. So how do I give somebody a better life? Not just getting them back to zero by getting them off drugs and alcohol. How can I actually make them into somebody better than they would have been otherwise? That's by giving them opportunity. How do I do that? I give to them by teaching them to give. So what am I doing for the poor today to help them to be net givers as opposed to net getters? You know, this is the problem with our welfare system. Our welfare system treats poor people as getters. It dehumanizes people by saying, you're poor, so you're a getter. And I'm a taxpayer, so I'm a giver. I'm a taxpayer, you're a tax eater. That's basically what we say to our poor in this country today through our welfare system. And it's wrong and it's immoral. And it dehumanizes people. So what can we do? What can we do to make people into givers? There are very significant programs out there that I've seen, but they're small, that say, my programs are going to be run by the poor for the poor. I'm going to make sure that anybody who gets also gives. And part of the experience will be getting and giving because, indeed, the greatest gift that we can give to anybody is teaching them to give. You know that. Most of you, like me, we have kids, and there's a reason you're teaching them to give. I mean, I, I, I care about the immortal soul of my children, too, but let me tell you, I know they're going to be happier, healthier, and richer as a result of it. And as is true for my kids, so is true with your clients. Okay, we'll take one question from the web, and then we'll return to our mics here. Uh, a question from remote site asked, how can you say that wealth disappeared? It was a bubble built on Wall Street entrepreneurial greed. Um, well, a bunch of numbers went away in a ledger. How did it disappear? Because it was somebody felt that they had and they were acting accordingly. It could have been spent, and then it couldn't be spent. That's in a nutshell. Now, was it, was it built on a bubble? Yes. Was it built on greed? It turns out p- people are greedy. Um, newsflash. Um, was it based on stupidity and venality? Absolutely. Just come to Washington, D.C., and you can see it continuing. Um, go to Wall Street, and you'll see a lot of people who are unrepentant about their stupidity and venality that led to this. Go to Main Street, and you'll see people who walked away from their mortgages unethically and irresponsibly who say that they were right to do so. And so my worry, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with very much with that question. Um, what alarms me is the fact that we've seen very little repentance. We got a question over here? 
Uh, thank you. I was um, noticed that you kind of avoided the political side of this a bit, and probably for trying to avoid stepping on toes. But I was wondering, you gave us certain challenges, and I was wondering if you believe that um, you kind of made it like the people against the government. Hmm. But do you believe that we can actually change the way that our country is going without getting people into the government who share our views? Yeah, it, and, and I, I actually avoided being overtly political, not, not because I was trying not to be controversial. I mean, no, nobody's ever told me that good non-controversial speech. Nobody's actually, nobody. <laughs> um, but because I, I honestly do believe we have a, a huge bipartisan statist problem in this country. Uh, but your question is, is really important. How, do you, how are you going to get, okay, okay, fine, fine, people against the government. And I think it's true. It is the constructive side. What are you going to do about it? And, and that's a huge problem because, and let me get an exa- sort of a personal example of how that's, a, that, that's an issue. Um, uh, uh, two years ago, approximately two years, no, a little bit more than two years ago, um, I was living in upstate New York before I, before I moved to Washington. I was teaching at Syracuse University. And our local congressman, who had been there for 573 terms or something, um, retired. Uh, and when he retired, he had no succession plan to speak of. And some Republicans came to me, even though I'm a registered independent, Republicans came to me and they said, uh, what do you fe- how do you feel about running for Congress? And so I went home and I, and I, and my, I told my wife Esther about it. I said, sweetheart, what do you think? And she said, well... As Roman Catholics, as you know, we do not believe in divorce. (laughs) There's a problem. There's a problem when it's not acceptable, when it's not viable, when it's not possible for somebody to want to serve, when it seems like not just too much of a sacrifice, but a crazy thing to want to do. When, when, When... when political participation, when service, is not a question of service by citizens, but rather a question of raw ambition by careerists. That's where we are. Who's going to solve that? (laughs) We are or nobody is. And that means people like you getting involved and saying, I am going to create value as a professional doing something that I think is important for the service of my family and my community and my country, and maybe on the side, I'm also going to serve my country in the political process. It means actually stepping forth and demanding that we have citizen politicians as opposed to solely ambitious, not solely, but mostly ambitious careerists. And that's, that's ours to participate in, and it's ours to demand, and so far we haven't done it well enough, but your question is a challenge to us. We'll take another question from the webcast. Uh, wouldn't the elimination of the estate tax in 2010, wouldn't the estate tax increase in 2010 being eliminated increase happiness? I think that's what the question meant. Hmm. Well, for those of you who have been watching um, the tax wars of late, the estate tax, which is the tax on inheritances, also known as the death tax, um, statu- statutorily was reduced to zero for 2010 and will go up back up to 45% in 2011. Um, uh, if you're planning on dying, I recommend that you do it in 2010. Is the, is, is, uh, is the, um, so, you know, I'm always good for recommendations. It's, it's not like I don't, it's not like I'm just complaining. I do give some practical advice, too. Um, 
So, so the question is, how does this relate to happiness? And, and, and the answer is, we, we don't really know, except to the extent that there has never been any evidence that coercing people to give money to the government ever does anything but bring unhappiness to people. Now, it's necessary pain in certain cases. I mean, I, I'm not going to come, come out and say we should reduce all taxes for all reasons to zero. I'm not some radical about this. I understand that we need public services. I personally want the government to pay for the army, and I know it's not cheap, for example. So we have to pay some taxes, and I'm willing to pay more than the average because life's been good to me. So, so there's a lot of stuff that I understand, and, it's, and, and, and I think there's a lot of peace that we can make along these lines, but I, I'm not going to pretend that paying taxes makes me happy and that the idea that just because I die, that my estate, on which I have basically already paid taxes, some of that should be taken away too, is going to make me any happier. I think that the, my personal view is that the estate tax is abusive. I think it's, a, I think it's a, an abridgment of liberty. I think it's immoral. And I think it should go away permanently. And so I can tell you right now that notwithstanding what I may or may not leave to my heirs, uh, my happiness would be increased dramatically if we were to permanently get rid of the estate tax on which we're in holiday right now. Hi. Uh, You've spoken very eloquently on the American economy, and I was just wondering more about the American economy in a global context. And what about free trade, entrepreneurship on a global scale? I mean, are the resultant marginalized populations or marginalized non-competitive economies simply the side effects of unethical or unrepresentative government domestically? And should we ask the world to espouse American values to reach a sort of uh, American happiness? Do you have data on global happiness as well? Yeah, there's lots of data on global happiness, but it's not reliable. Uh, is the bottom line. I mean, there's lot, lots of comparisons between countries, and sometimes they say Brazil is the happiest, sometimes they say Denmark is the happiest, uh, but y- you can't rely on it because these questions are asked in different languages at different times in different ways, and it's, the data are too unstable. So there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that the countries where people are dying from preventable diseases and of starvation, of real subsistence living, uh, these, th- these are places where people are authentically less happy because of the deprivation that they feel. And I think that we have a real moral objective here is to try to relieve that in the best way possible. It's also very clear that the best way possible does not mean governments giving to governments of corrupt third world countries where people are really poor because that has not solved the problem over the past 50 years. We need better solutions to help people who are truly in need, and that will raise worldwide happiness. Now, to the the question of globalization. People say this a lot. You know, one of the reasons that people are unhappy around the world is because of globalization. Bhutan, the tiny Himalayan kingdom, actually started an index called Gross National Happiness, where they tried to raise the happiness of their people. One of the ways that they did that was by anti-globalization measures, such that non-Hindu values would not be propagated in time inside their tiny kingdom, getting rid of globalization. Uh, the fairest reading of the data worldwide, particularly in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, says that indeed globalization lies behind lots of unhappiness, but it's because of insufficient globalization. The problem with sub-Saharan Africa is it's not globalized enough It can't get the gains from trade. It's not competitive in worldwide economies. And and if you want to uh, to get an idea of how we can contrast it, if you look over the past two decades, 
There is one country that's responsible for 75% of the worldwide reduction in poverty. 75% in one country, and that's China. And the main reason for that is globalization and trade. Over the past two decades, China has increased its trade with the United States by a thousand percent. So in other words, it's not just globalization and it's not just trade. It's trade and globalization with the United States that has saved tens, probably hundreds of millions of lives in China. If we want to save Africa, we need to think about entrepreneurial, globalized, and trade-oriented solutions that will lift people up in those places the way that it has in other parts of the world. I agree that globalization is a problem. Uh, in a nutshell, insufficient globalization. One last question. You argue that the only way out of a past and current economic crisis is hard work and entrepreneurship. What is your opinion of people who say that the New Deal and government spending on World War II is what got America out of the Great Depression? Uh, narratives they, they, uh, let me repeat the question um, my argument has been that hard work and entrepreneurship are the only way out of this crisis sometimes people will observe to me yeah but the last great recession the, at least the great depression we got out of that one by government spending you know, President Roosevelt, he spent a whole bunch of taxpayer money and created a whole bunch of programs and then ultimately fought a really big war which spent a lot of money and, and that saved the American economy what do you say to that huh that's what I hear a lot. And um, it's not how you said it. <laughs> I can't believe how provocative you are. <laughs> um, narratives are powerful things in economies. If you can get the narrative about what really happened in macroeconomic phenomenon, you win. Because then you get to change the economic culture. And there's a big narrative about the... About the about the Great Depression in America in the, in the, in the 1930s. And the, and the narrative is this, uh, is this. Herbert Hoover was an incorrigible free marketeer. His free market policies led America into, into iniquity and a horrible financial crisis. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt came along and understood that free enterprise was out of control, and he started spending a whole lot of money in creating jobs, and that's what pulled America out of the financial crisis that it was in, out of the, the macroeconomic crisis that plagued it. Every part of that narrative is wrong. Yet You knew it. You, you've heard that before because you read it in your history books when you were in high school, but it's not right. Herbert Hoover was not a free marketeer, and wild macroeconomic spending by Franklin D. Roosevelt did not pull America out of the macroeconomic crisis. On, on the contrary, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it prolonged it but in the meantime, since it owned the narrative, we've taken over the idea that Keynesian macroeconomic spending on virtually anything, you could take money and, and, and burn it practically, and that would stimulate the economy based on this narrative, is something that will do us good. Now, that narrative was wrong, and it stimulated a whole lot of arguments that we still get today. Today's narrative from the current leadership is equally wrong about this crisis, and I urge you to regret it and to be skeptical of it, because if it takes hold, your kids and grandkids are going to be reading about that in their history books, and we're going to repeat it nine more times within the next 90 years. That's what the data tell us, and we don't have to if we simply will tell the truth and grab the narrative and speak for our 70% values. Thank you.
Thank you to Dr. Brooks. Our speaker for tomorrow, unfortunately, is very ill and will not be coming. We have, though, arranged for Pastor Harry Harvey Carey of the Thank Citadel you. Faith Covenant Church in Detroit to talk about the challenge of, challenges of uh, the inner city and what his church is doing in that regard. So he will be speaking in lieu of our scheduled speaker. You can check our website for details, uh, calvin.edu slash January. Thanks again for coming and look forward to seeing you at more January series lectures.